All right, good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Glad to jump back into our, uh, our theology class. We've been going through biblical doctrine, covering a number of different topics, uh, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of salvation. And right now we are uh, in our second week of ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. So let's pray, and we'll jump into uh, our lesson today, which will be a lesson on the church's structure and authority. Father, thank you for... Um, these special moments each week, uh, on the first day of the week, when we can gather, remember you, remember your death, burial, and resurrection, and remember your word and that it speaks to us. I pray that we would set aside the distractions and the burdens uh, of this week and that you would give us minds that are alert and hearts that are receptive to your truth. Please help me as I, as I teach this morning. I pray that you would be with Stephen as he preaches from Philippians in a little bit, that we would be dependent on your spirit and that you would use us to strengthen your church and feed your flock. Amen. So ecclesiology. Um, I was talking to Stephen as he was preparing for his lesson, and I really believe that one of the most neglected doctrines in the church today, uh, one of the doctrines that people understand the least and that actually causes a lot of problems, um, is ecclesiology. I think it's something that is not probably the first thing that would cause you to go buy a book on doctrine, like, oh, I really want to know more about ecclesiology. No, it's probably the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of God, even the doctrine of end times. It's other doctrines that typically pique people's interest. Rarely do people say, oh, I want to learn more about the church. But think about this. This is something that impacts our life on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. And I've seen many Christians who have a very weak and underdeveloped understanding of what the church is. And what happens when you have Christians with a weak understanding, that means you have churches with a weak understanding of what the church is and how it's to function. And when you have weak understanding by churches and even church leaders, um, that's in the long run actually dangerous. Uh, It can be harmful to people. So uh, we want to honor God and we also want to have strong churches because that's good for people. So I'm glad that um, we have the time like this in our class to study ecclesiology. So last week, Stephen talked about what the church is, uh, how it began in the New Testament, talked about the nature of the church, and today we're talking about the structure and authority of the church. Another word for that, you could call it church polity. Polity is a word that gets used um, when talking about this topic related to the word politics. Um, As you know, there's different uh, models of politics around the world. Uh, We live uh, in a unique uh, kind of experiment here in the United States where we have these three branches of government that relate to each other a certain way. So authority and the structure in our nation is different than in Great Britain because we won the war. Um, And it's different than it is in Russia and different than it is in China. There's all these different models of human government. And so we're going to look at some different structures of uh, government for the church and talk about how authority um, uh, exists in the church. And first and foremost, I think I skipped one. These buttons are sensitive. There we go. I want to talk about the preeminence of Christ. Uh, Any discussion about the church has to start and end with Jesus Christ. Any discussion about the authority in the church, obviously, has to start and end with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. It is his body. Uh, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The church itself is founded on his person and his work. And Christ is the good shepherd. It's his flock. I want to look at each of these three just for a moment. Christ is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18 says, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. 
that in everything he might be preeminent. Everything. Christ is to be preeminent in the church because he's the head of the church. Ephesians 1.22 similarly says, He, speaking of God the Father, put all things under his, his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Um, in Ephesians 5.23, famous text. We often think about it because of its implications for marriage. But it tells us a theological reality, that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And this really speaks to two different things. To say Christ is the head of the church, uh, we're saying something about his position, that he is the church's supreme authority. He is over the church. He has all authority in the church. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That definitely includes the church. What this means is that submission to the lordship of Christ is essential. And it's not just essential individually for each of us personally to be submitted to the lordship of Christ. Yes, it is. And we think about that. We should think about that on a daily basis. But it's essential that we be corporately submitted to the lordship of Christ. Jesus must be preeminent in and over the church. That's what we mean when we say Christ is the head of the church. This speaks to his position, that he is the church's supreme authority. No pope, no pastor, no committee, no denomination, no congregation possesses more authority than Jesus Christ. But this secondly speaks to his provision. When we say Christ is the church... We're indicating that we believe he is the church's source of life. So he's not just our supreme authority as the head. I mean, my head tells my hands and my legs and my feet what to do. If not, there's something really wrong with with me. That's unhealthy. And when the head is no longer directing the body. So yes, my head is in charge. But also there's a source of life. When when the, the brain and the head and breathing and eating, everything starts here in the head. And life flows through the body that way. Colossians 2.19 says, well, it warns us in the verse before this. He says, let no one disqualify you. And he talks about all these empty religious approaches that we might be tempted to reach out for. And he says in verse 19, to reject that because those people are not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. That's really important, that Christ is not just over the church as its authority. He is our source of life. The whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And that happens when we hold fast to the head. So Christ is the head of the church, our supreme authority, and the church's source of life. John 15 talks to us about abiding in Christ and that we cannot bear fruit. I would say that's true individually and true as a church, corporately. Unless we abide in him, there won't be fruitfulness. There won't be life. There won't be growth. So Christ is the head of the church. But also the church is built on Christ. 1 Peter 2, 4-8 through 8, calls Jesus the cornerstone. I'll just read that for you. Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, and here he quotes from the Old Testament, from the Psalms, 
Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So there's a new metaphor here that Peter's using. Not only is the church like a body that has a head, the church is like a building. And we are like living stones that are being built together. And it says that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The church is built on Christ. It's built on his person and his work, who he is as the son of God. And what he has done in terms of establishing the church through his death, burial, and resurrection purchasing a people, making us alive, making us into living stones, and then joining us together. Jesus is the cornerstone. The church is built on Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11 uses a similar metaphor and calls Jesus the foundation of the church. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So as Paul travels, he's preaching the gospel, he's planting churches, He says there's only one way for a church to be built, and that's on Jesus Christ, on his person, on his work, on the message and truth of Jesus, the truth about Jesus, that is the cornerstone. And then in Ephesians 2.19, we see both of these images, the idea of a cornerstone, which is the, the crucial first part of a foundation, and even the foundation itself, we see all that brought together in Ephesians 2. Paul says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You can tell Paul's excited about the church because he uses like three different metaphors here. He talks about us being fellow citizens. So you think about belonging to a kingdom, and we have a king, Jesus Christ. Members of the household of God, so we're part of a family, and God is our father, and Christ is our older brother. And then he switches to this final metaphor of it, a bit, of it being a building. They were built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And you say, wait a second, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3 that Jesus is the foundation. In Ephesians 2, he says the apostles and prophets are the foundation. But I don't think those disagree. When he refers to the apostles and prophets, he's not referring to those men as men. He's referring to their ministry And their ministry was one of proclaiming Christ. Their ministry as apostles was to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to point people to Jesus Christ. And they did it in the power of Jesus Christ. So the apostles, apart from Jesus, are are nothing. And anything that they've done that lasts is done through the power of Christ. And it's specifically the proclamation of Christ's gospel. So when he talks about the foundation of the apostles and prophets, he's talking about their message. He's talking about their teaching. And it's the truth about Jesus. And he says Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. So Ephesians pulls these images together. And all of these texts show us that the church is built on Christ. So he's the head of the church. He's also the foundation, the cornerstone. And finally, he is the good shepherd. It's his flock. And that means the church belongs to Christ. Listen to John 10, 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. 
the church belongs to Jesus Christ. He is the shepherd. We are the sheep. We are his own. We belong to him. That's why we hear his voice. And he says, I have other sheep. As he's speaking to Jewish believers here, he says, this flock is going to get bigger because I have other sheep. There's, there's Gentiles that are going to be brought in and added to this fold so that I will have one flock and I will be their shepherd. Um, this is Christ's church. We are his flock. In Matthew 16, Jesus promises to build the church and he calls it my church. He says, I will build my church. So the church belongs to Christ. He is the head of the church. He's the foundation for the church. He is the good shepherd. So the church belongs to him. So any discussion about authority in the church or authority over the church really starts and ends with Jesus Christ. Nobody's bigger than him. Nobody has a claim on the church that is not underneath his authority. So we need to start by talking about Christ. But then we can move on and say, okay, well, how does Jesus delegate authority? Because Jesus isn't physically here today. Uh, Jesus isn't going to personally attend our leadership team meeting, you know, in a couple weeks. So how is this, how is this authority delegated? And, and, and who is it that exercises this authority in the church today? So in terms of leadership in the church, I want to look at three different offices that we see in the New Testament. Apostles, pastors or elders, and then deacons. And we'll talk about each of these. Um, first of all, the early leadership in the church was clearly apostolic. It was apostolic. Apostles of Jesus Christ uh, were the ones who exercised that immediate authority as Jesus ascended back into heaven. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father. But there were 12 that he handed the keys to. And he said, you guys have the authority. You guys have the responsibility for the church. That authority and responsibility always comes together. And these apostles had a unique role, a unique calling, and their mission was to establish the church. Now, the word apostle simply means one who is sent, but it means more than just somebody sent on an errand. It means one who is sent, but who bears the authority of the sender. So when apostle speaks on behalf of the one who sent him, those words carry the authority of the one who sent him. So when Peter or Paul or James speak to the church, they speak with the authority of Jesus Christ, the one who is the head, the one who is the foundation, the one who is the good shepherd. So that's why they often introduce their letters in the New Testament by sort of flashing their apostle card. You know, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Because they know that in order for their message to be received, people need to know that it comes with authority. It's not just suggestions or advice or ideas that you could try for the church. It comes with the authority of Jesus. So apostles have the authority of Jesus Christ. And there's a few marks of, of the apostles, things we see that are sort of common denominators between all the apostles. First of all, an apostle is one who was chosen personally and explicitly by Jesus Christ and appointed by him. There are no self-appointed apostles. There are no apostles who sort of figure it out on their own. Apostles are those whom Jesus looks them in the eye, calls them by name, and says, you are going to serve me in this specific capacity. Secondly, these apostles were empowered by the Holy Spirit to perform signs, wonders, miracles. And the purpose of these miracles were to authenticate their position and message. If someone claims to be an apostle, if they claim to have the authority of Christ... That means they have authority over the demons. That means they have authority over the physical realm, authority over disease and all these different things. 
That's why the Apostle Paul could raise Eutychus back to life after he fell out of the window. That's why when he got bit by a snake, he could just shake it off into the fire and there was no harm done. That's why um, Peter was able to heal. They had a special empowerment by the Holy Spirit that is unique to their apostolic office. There's something special about the apostles that's different than what all the other members of the church had. And the reason why they were to do these things, the reason they could do these things, is because it proved to everyone around them, okay, this person does have a special kind of authority. They must be telling the truth when they claim to have the authority of Christ behind their words. So when Paul preached or Peter preached, that authenticated their message and proved that they were indeed truly apostles. I could claim to be an apostle today. I could try to persuade you. I could try to impress you with my power of personality, as little as that may be. Um, But unless I can do something that nobody else can do in terms of power, that claim to apostleship is empty. So these apostles are chosen by Christ, appointed by him, empowered by the Spirit to do signs and wonders. Third, they were all eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Now, there were other eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ who were not apostles, but there were no apostles who didn't personally witness the resurrected Christ. Obviously, um, Paul, as the last apostle, uh, Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, but the rest of them saw Jesus in the upper room. He appeared to them. So they were all eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. And this is important, and here's why. When you read the New Testament, you see the apostolic message was about Jesus Christ, specifically that he was risen from the dead and that he is the Messiah. Now, these apostles weren't just testifying to something they had read about. They weren't just testifying to something they had learned or heard of. They were testifying to something they had seen. And that matters. That matters. So all of the apostles were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. And then finally, these apostles were recipients of divine revelation. God spoke to them and God spoke through them in ways that he didn't speak to or through other people. That's why many of these apostles write books of the Bible. They have divine revelation coming to them as apostles that is unique. And so if we look at these four marks of apostleship, we ask the question, are there apostles today? Are there people today who've been chosen personally by Christ and appointed by him explicitly? Um, Some may claim that, but it seems doubtful. Let's continue. Are there apostles today empowered by the Spirit to perform signs that authenticate their position and message? Um, Now it's the signs are seeming to point to no. Let's keep going. Are there apostles today who are eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ? No. Are there apostles today who are recipients of divine revelation? Again, some claim to, but when that message is tested, it doesn't hold up to the standard. So when we look at all these different tests of apostleship, it becomes clear that the apostles fulfilled a unique and temporary role. We don't have apostles today. It's a temporary office that was intended to lay a foundation for the church. And the Apostle Paul was the last one. In 1 Corinthians 15, 8, he talks about how Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to many, including the twelve. And he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. See, the Apostle Paul thinks of himself as the last one, as the final apostle, the last one to see the resurrected Christ and be commissioned with this task. So the early leadership of the church was apostolic. So that's why when you read the book of Acts, you see apostles all over the place. Um, But there's a reason why we don't today. 
And I think I've shared this before, maybe in our, our newcomers class, but in talking about the role of the apostles, if we just survey the book of Acts, we see the transitional nature of apostolic leadership. We see this transition happening. In Acts 1 through 6, the leadership of the church, the authority in the church, is purely apostolic. We don't see reference to anybody else being in charge. We see the apostles leading the church. But then in Acts 6, we see the establishment of the office of deacon. So now we have this new component that's being added in. In Acts chapter 11, we find that there are elders now functioning in a leadership role. So there's this new piece of the puzzle that's being added. Um, In Acts chapter 14, we see Paul and Barnabas going back, retracing their steps, going to places of fruitful ministry from their missionary journeys, and establishing elders in these churches. So the apostles are seeking to hand the baton to elders who will, who will lead in the local church. In Acts chapter 15, we see apostles and elders meeting together, sharing responsibility and authority in the church. And then by the time we get to Acts 20, we see elders functioning as the sole leadership in the local churches. And this becomes the new pattern, the new normal. And as the epistles go on, we see increasingly more and more that the leadership of the church is elders, no longer apostles. So it it tapers off through the book of Acts and even through the epistles to where this transitional leadership gives way. As the apostles fade off the scene, it is elders, pastors, who carry the baton of leadership in the local church. So these two offices emerge in the book of Acts, elders and deacons. And that is the ongoing, these two offices we see in the church today ongoing. We see both of these brought together in Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, that would be the congregation who who are at Philippi, with the overseers, that would be pastors or elders, and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is greeting the whole church, those who lead, those who serve in a special capacity as deacons, and the members at large, the saints. And that seems to give us a good holistic picture of, of the church today. So elders and deacons are these two current offices. Let's talk about elders or pastors. Um, Our conviction here is that the word elder and the word pastor, the word overseer that we see in the New Testament, all refer to one office. One office, but three different functions. You can think of this as a threefold job description for those who lead in the church today. The word pastor is poimen in Greek. It just means shepherd. Shepherd. we use the word pastor in, in English, but really it's, it's shepherd. You think about pasture, you know, the place where the sheep are to go eat and where the shepherd watches over them. That's where we get our word pastor from. So shepherd, uh, the word elder would be presbuteros. Um, it's, a, it's a leader, it's an elder in the church, uh, someone who has wisdom and maturity. Uh, it doesn't speak primarily to age, someone being older, but to wisdom and maturity, someone who's trusted to give direction to the community. And then the word overseer would be episkopos. We get our word episcopalian from that. And it refers, uh, it used to be translated bishop in the King James Version. Uh, so bishop or overseer is, a, is what we get from this word episkopos. And it refers to someone who exercises oversight. It's an administrative um, type uh, type role. And, I, and we believe that these are all different uh, functions of the elder. So there's a pastoral function. Uh, the leaders in the church are to shepherd the flock by feeding and guiding and protecting. That's a pastoral function. There's an elder function where those who have maturity and wisdom who are recognized as leaders in the church are to make decisions and lead and govern in the church. 
And then there's an oversight function, an overseer function, where these leaders are to administrate, to provide direction and protection for the church. So this would be the threefold job description of, of elders or pastors um, in the church today. Um, we see these three ideas brought together in one place in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. Peter writes, I exhort the elders, the presbyteros, that's the word elder, the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So this is a verb. He's saying you're to pastor them. You're to shepherd them. So elders are to shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight. There's the word that we get um, um, bishop or uh, episcopal from. Exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So Peter brings all three of these ideas together in one context. And he's not speaking to three different types of people in the church. He's speaking to one office and saying, this is your function. This is what you are to do. Similarly, in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and verses 28, uh, it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. This is Paul speaking to the elders at Ephesus. And here's what he tells them a few verses later, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock... So there's a pastoral word in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So elders shepherd the flock because they are overseers. So that's why we see that there's not elders and pastors. We see that elder pastor is synonymous. Those are two different descriptions of one office. And then the second office in the church is deacon. Deacon simply means servant. And while all members are to serve, everyone deacons in, in a certain sense. A deacon is an office of the church reserved for spirit-filled men who are trusted and selected by the congregation who fit a specific character requirement. Um, we see this in Acts chapter 6 where there's a need. Um, you can turn there if you like. Uh, we'll just kind of skim through this real quick. Acts chapter 6 um, as the church is growing uh, explosively, and they're trying to figure out how to keep up with all this rapid growth. In Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, those, that's those who are Greek speakers, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So there's concerns about favoritism, or at the very least, concerns about um, um, just being thorough and, and, and paying attention to needs in the church. So verse 2 says, And the twelve, referring to the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. So there's a character qualifier. Full of the spirit and of wisdom. There's a spiritual maturity right there whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they, this is referring to the congregation, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So this is the first instance of deacons in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gives character qualifiers 
um, requirements for deacons. Uh, so deacons are, are not just servants, because everybody serves, but they're servants that are trusted by the congregation as a whole, selected by the congregation as a whole, who meet certain marks of maturity and wisdom and, and spiritual um, power. They're filled with the Spirit, and they're entrusted with specific tasks that affect the whole church. So that's what deacons are. So they perform a serving role. Deacons do not primarily exercise spiritual oversight. In some churches, deacons function as sort of a board that makes decisions and sort of leads the church, which means they're really functioning as elders. They're functioning as pastors instead of functioning as deacons. Deacons primarily uh, fulfill a serving role. So that's apostles, pastors, elders, deacons. Apostolic leadership was temporary. They laid a foundation. Once their teaching was done, once they had handed the baton to the next generation of leaders, apostles faded off the scene. And the ongoing um, kind of normal leadership in the church is now given to pastors, elders, with deacons as a special office that supports that leadership um, in the local church. So let's talk a little bit about authority in the church. How is this to be organized? While Christ is the ultimate authority, how is this authority delegated how is it exercised? How does that function in the church today? There's a few different options on the way churches are organized today. There's different types of church polity. One way to organize the church is called elder rule. That's where final authority belongs to the pastors or elders in a local congregation. So there's no outside authority. There's no outside accountability. Uh, the elders have that authority, and the congregation is somewhat passive in that. They do not participate in that necessarily. The elders have um, have all the authority in the church. And usually this is a plurality of elders who exercise authority in their local congregation. That would be one model. That's elder rule. A second model would be the Presbyterian model of church government. And that's where final authority belongs to an external gathering of leaders. This would be elders from multiple congregations who make decisions that, that uh, affect the local churches and, and hold them accountable. So sort of the string of command would be the local church, if I'm understanding this rightly. Some of you guys could probably correct me if I'm wrong. But the local church would be underneath a session of elders. That session would be accountable to a presbytery, and then that would be um, ultimately accountable to the general assembly for the denomination. So there's sort of a chain that goes up of authority. So there's external authority that is over the local congregation uh, in that model. There's a third model called the Episcopalian model, um, and you can see that all of these titles, they come from words we see in the New Testament. In the Episcopalian model, the final authority belongs not to an assembly, not to a session of elders, a group. It belongs to an individual, a bishop who oversees multiple congregations. This would be the model for the Roman Catholic Church, for the Anglican Church, for the Methodist denomination. So in this model, you have the local church, which is led by a pastor or a rector or a priest, who then is underneath a bishop, and that bishop is, is underneath an archbishop or a pope or whatever you want to call him. So that's another model of church government. So that's where, again, you have outside authority, but the outside authority ultimately comes from an individual, not a, a body, an assembly, like it does in the Presbyterian model. And then a final model will be known as the congregational model, and this is where final authority in the church belongs to the members of the church. So the elders are to lead the church. They have authority, but the congregation is involved. They're not passive. Like in the elder rule model, the congregation is more passive. Um, the elders just tell the church what you're going to do and what's happening and what the decisions are, and the church follows along with that. In the congregational model, 
there are certain aspects of um, the church's authority that the congregation is involved in. Now, with all of these models, there can be abuses. And with all of these models, there can be like a, an ideal, a best expression of them. Um, in the congregational model, this can devolve in an unhealthy way into a raw democracy where everything is voted on and the elders, the pastors, the overseers possess no authority. They're, they're handcuffed and they're not able to lead. They're not able to do their job. They're not able to do the things God has called them to do without permission from the congregation. And that's an unhealthy um, expression of, of a congregational model. Uh, in other churches, it devolves into a committee-controlled kind of a situation where you have a few pockets of people that really hold the keys and the pastor is sort of underneath that. That's an unhealthy expression of this. Um, there can also be an unhealthy expression where you have a senior pastor who's the CEO and everything is, is the power of his personality and what he says goes. And that's also an unhealthy expression of this. I think ideally this congregational model is, is, is sort of a, a hybrid almost between pure congregationalism and the elder rule model. The way we describe it here is we are elder-led with congregational involvement. Um, we want the congregation to be involved. People have asked me, who is it that holds the pastors accountable if there's no outside um, denomination, if there's no session of elders? It's like, well, the, the church holds the pastor accountable. Um, and we see that in the New Testament where the church is to be involved. And so I'd just like to talk about congregational responsibility for a moment. First Peter 2 verse 9 tells us we are a body of priests. And that means that as priests, we all have ministry responsibility. Um, the church body, the congregation, is responsible to do the work of ministry. Ephesians 4 tells us that pastors and teachers and all these different types of giftings have been given to equip the church to do the work of the ministry. So ministry is not the pastor's job. Ministry, that job belongs to the church as a whole, to the congregation. Pastors certainly have their unique role in that. But the church body is responsible to do the work of ministering, responsible to select deacons for service. We see that in Acts, that the apostles, they gathered the full number of the disciples, all of them, the whole congregation of that church in Jerusalem, and said, you guys as a whole are to select uh, deacons for service. Now, we don't know the exact form of how they did that. Did they do paper nominations and vote on it like we do? I, I don't know. So there's a little bit of freedom and flexibility to the form of how this selection takes place, but we do know the congregation is to be involved in doing that. The congregation is responsible to remove elders who fall into sin. We see this in 1 Timothy 5, um, that there is authority in the church to remove a pastor who disqualifies himself because of sinful behavior or who disqualifies himself because of false teaching. We see this in Galatians 1. The church is responsible to preserve the purity of the gospel. Paul writes the, the book of Galatians to the church, not to a pastor. It's not a pastoral epistle like First and Second Timothy or Titus. He writes it to the church, and he says, If anyone, an angel from heaven, even myself, preaches to you a different gospel other than what you've heard, let him be accursed. That you as a church are responsible to reject false teachers. So there's a responsibility and a level of authority in the church. If the church is able to pronounce a curse of anathema, on a false teacher. If the church is able to discipline a pastor who falls into sin, that means the church congregation has some level of authority. And so we need to be sure that the congregation is involved in those aspects 
of, of accountability and authority and responsibility in the church. Now, this doesn't in any way um, overrule the, the authority of pastors and elders to do the things that God has called them to do. And so there is a, a way in which the church is supposed to relate to their leaders. The church is accountable to God's established leaders and responsible for them. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says that the congregation is to value the work of those who are over them. Uh, the congregation is to follow the faith of those who are over them. Hebrews 13.7 says to follow their example. And, and finally, the congregation is responsible to provide to provide for those who are over them. First Timothy 5, um, to provide for a workman who's worthy of his labor. First um, Thessalonians 5.12, I'll just read that text for you. It says, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. So this congregational involvement doesn't place the pastor underneath, but it means that there is accountability and responsibility there. So if we could sort of summarize all of this biblically, what is the authority structure for the church? Christ is the head of the church. Pastors, elders are to shepherd and lead and exercise oversight. Deacons are to serve. And the congregation is to minister, support, follow, and engage. So that would be our understanding of, of really the, the proper uh, structure and, and authority in the church. And again, you can have the right structure, but in order for this structure to work, it requires that people be faithful and that we hold to what Scripture teaches. Ultimate authority is Christ's, and he expresses his will to us in his word. So anytime a pastor or an elder leads away from truth or in contradiction to truth, he's just forfeited his authority because he's now in opposition to Christ. Likewise, anytime the congregation tries to do something that goes away from what Scripture says, or violates what scripture says, the congregation has forfeited any claim to authority that they have in the church. Um, anytime a pastor or a deacon behaves in a way that, that compromises his character, he's now forfeited his right to serve in that office. So ultimately, at the end of the day, Christ's authority, which is found in his word, is the final authority. Um, and we want to keep in step with that as a church. So uh, I've talked about some of these things before in our newcomers class, but we were able to touch on a few different aspects today. If you have questions uh, about uh, church polity, about ecclesiology, about authority in the church and how that works, be sure to write those questions down. You can give those to me or to Stephen, and we'll be having um, our discussion at the end of this section. But next week, come back because Carrie Wilson will be talking about um, the two ordinances of the church, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we'll touch on those next week. Uh, but we'll wrap up today. Let's pray real quick, and we'll be back here in about 20 minutes for worship. Lord, thank you for um, just the confidence we can have that you're the one who builds your church. And that in every age, in every generation, you have always provided what your church needs. You provide direction and clarity in your word. You provide the leaders and the servants that the church needs. And you make us into a, a body. You build us into a dwelling place for your spirit collectively. Uh, we are your flock and we hear your voice. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that ultimately the church belongs to you. You are our head. You are the foundation. You are our shepherd. So we praise you and ask you that you would help us to understand the, the beauty, and, and as Paul prays in, in Ephesians, the breadth and the depth and the height of this great thing that you were doing.
in loving a people and calling them to yourself. So Lord, prepare our hearts now for worship as we gather to sing and to listen to the preaching of your word. Be glorified in our midst today in your church. In Christ's name, amen.